everybody, this is Hannah, and we wanted to present for you a conversation that Dustin and I had with Ben Godar from the Des Moines Film Society. You've heard from him before if you listen to the podcast because he's done pre-show talks for us and we've collaborated with him on a couple different things. Um, And tonight we sat down despite many technical difficulties (laughs) to talk about Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, um, as well as a brief conversation about the new film Dear Skin. So um, thank you in advance for listening. And here is a conversation between me and... Dustin. And before we get into and it, Ben. And Ben, yes, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to say too, this is uh, kind of the last bonus episode we're gonna do before we actually have our next official episode, which will be all about Satyajit Ray's. Yeah, we're bringing our Chris back. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so Satyajit Ray's <laughs> classic uh, debut film, Pathor Pinchali. So we're really excited to bring you that next week. And Chris, we need Chris back. Chris, our Chris. Yes. So, anyways, with that said, uh, we had an absolutely engaging conversation, and uh, thanks everybody check it out so anyway i suppose i'll welcome everyone back here to (laughs) uh home cinema club uh we had a couple technical issues tonight uh hopefully this uh recording is going to go through okay we look a little different because we're using a different technology right now we're using zoom that's powering all of your uh meetings everyone's doing everywhere so uh, we will be uploading this to facebook later we won't be able to get the live interaction in from folks here but still really excited to have a conversation with uh hannah and with dustin from lantern cinema so uh if you guys don't know hannah and dustin uh they uh lantern puts on great live shows at vaudeville muse they're doing uh, an amazing podcast uh, so you should definitely check that out, but I want to let you guys introduce yourselves as well. Oh, well, you've done an awesome job so far. <laughs> Thanks for having us do this. Um, so like you said, we're Hannah and Dustin. We're two thirds of the Lantern crew. Um, the other is our buddy, Chris Biagini, who does the podcast with us. And essentially we do the things you already talked about. We do live screenings when we're able. Um, we do the podcast and we've been pushing that a little bit more since we've all been inside. <laughs> and I, I think Hannah said that 30% of our content has came out within the last three weeks or whatever it is. So. Yeah, we are rocking the <laughs> quarantine content. Um, so yeah, then our whole goal, just like you, is we like having conversations about film. We like learning more about movies and we want to broaden um, the conversation locally about film. And with the podcast, we try to strike a, a blend of having extremely informative uh, film analysis in an entertaining kind of way. Every now and then we have opportunities to have guests come on. We actually just secured another one we're pretty excited about. So more will be revealed in regards to that. But Ben, it's an absolute honor uh, for you to ask us to come and do this. So our, our, our paths haven't crossed yet in this format. So it's exciting to finally get to do this. That's true. We have not crossed in the live stream slash podcast format. So but, <laughs> but we have we have crossed in real life back when real life was a thing. So yes. <laughs> well, and I had mentioned previously, Ben introduced us to an amazing film that we had an opportunity to collaborate on, which was Phantom of the Paradise, which uh, Ben came to us with this really crazy nutty movie with this amazing film track uh, soundtrack. And it was just perfect for our rock and cinema series so yeah oh yeah well and again i 
uh, having never seen it projected and with an audience, it was it was so awesome to be able to see that at, at Vaudeville Muse with you guys. So thanks again. For- well, I don't know if we told so you. Fun. Yeah, it was so fun. I wanted to tell you this, Ben. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, another friend of our show, Ian, which I'm sure he's a friend of Des Moines Film Society as well. He has come to each uh, subsequent Lantern screening, and the next one, he came with a Death Records t-shirt so it had some wings it had some wings that, 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 yeah. man now filing in the back of my head get a death record yeah. t-shirt. <laughs> i know i'm so jealous yeah that's cool oh man that's fantastic so um well so so this week uh you know uh, invited you guys on to kind of join us we're uh all through may we're looking at these uh, independent black and white 80s films that happen to be first films for these really interesting directors. So uh, last week we talked about Jim Jarmusch's Strangers in Paradise and really excited this week to talk with you guys about uh, Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. Um, so again, I should mention our, our sponsor that kind of helped us come up with this, New Belgium. I'm drinking their 1985 Ranger IPA here. I'm on my second one because we've had some technical difficulties. So I, I was wondering time. if it was a three beer technical yeah. difficulty or not. Well, not yet, but we're just getting started. Yeah. So, let's see. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, it's uh, it's helping me not worry about the technical difficulties. So it's uh, it's doing its job. But um, but we appreciate the support from New Belgium, and we're we're enjoying kind of uh, conversing about these these films. So. Um, you know, to that end, uh, I guess just to kind of kick things off, and I know we kind of talked about this a smidge beforehand, but just to get back to it, I think one of the things that excited both of us about this film is the fact that it is so kind of independent. And uh, uh, what? so what were some of those elements that maybe jumped out to you guys about She's Gotta Have It? Well, I think before I'd said, and I said this to Dustin while we were watching it, there's just this idea of like almost being a student film. This was his first, this is Spike Lee's first feature length uh, movie, and it's a little bit rough around the edges. And so for me, that's what was striking. It seems so vibrant and interesting. And even though it might not be perfect and polished, I think it had a really attractive quality in that way. Because I mean, I'm, I'm naturally drawn to things that are that aren't as perfect. Um, so like lo-fi music recordings and student films, that kind of thing. I feel like the film has a certain folk art quality to it. It almost has a real handmade kind of aesthetic. And uh, yes, as she points to the folk <laughs> art painting in the back, uh, as an artist, that's something that is in- incredibly inspiring for me. Um, it's not so inspiring to go see Spider-Man in the in the theaters. It's it's exciting and it feels a little bit like a roller coaster. But seeing something on a smaller scale like this, I think both you know for for me and Hannah gives us that feeling of like, oh, we we might be able to make something like this someday. It, like it, it engages the excitement of the artist. I feel this film. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and something I'd mentioned before, but just to kind of re- reframe it for me, I, and in those in those kind of music terms, I really I thought about that, like, first album from your favorite band, and especially a band that maybe would go on to really blow up and have the big kind of studio albums with the amazing production, and those would be really great. But sometimes that first album, you know, like maybe the lineup wasn't quite set yet. And so there was like, 
you know, one guy, you know, like the bass player or the drummer was like their good friend, but he just couldn't play at all. And so that was like a little bit of a little bit of a hindrance. And, you know, maybe it was it was self-recorded and self-produced. And so it had like some shaggy edges, but like you could hear the sort of singularity of the voice and you could hear all of those things that you were ultimately going to really love about this band still coming through. And that that really stood out to me about she's got to have it. May I ask you, Ben, one question? Um, one thing that I'm curious about for you, what was it that that gave it that quality for you? What was something that stuck out as like, oh, this is definitely a first film? Well, I mean, you know, in terms of the, I guess, the sort of shaggy edge aspects of it, to me, it's, it's all about the acting and the performances. And I think several of those are just not real strong. And, um, you know, and unfortunately, like kind of the, the lead performance is just not real. I, I just didn't have much engagement with her. I didn't really get a big read there. And, and, and I think some of that could be in the writing, but I think a lot of it was sort of in the performance, but, but in a lot of the characters too, it, it, you know, I, I felt like a lot of your kind of, um, I mean, I, and I, I did, you know, high school and college theater myself, so I'm not saying this like disparagingly, but it felt like kind of your, you know, college theater, you know, actors kind of doing their first film. And it had a little bit of that kind of stilted quality to some of the performances. You know, that said, in terms of like what comes through, just, I mean, he has such a, I mean, his, obviously his his eye and the, you know, the, the visuals and the way that he uh, incorporates music into it, uh, you know, just, you know, unbelievable elements and just just the way his kind of fearlessness in terms of just like going for it, which I think are real hallmarks of Spike Lee films throughout his whole career. Those are some things to me that kind of felt like they were they were present here. I don't know what what were some of those things for you? Well, you mentioned too before, I don't know how much of this we were able to catch, but you mentioned even just, you, know, you talked about um, unprofessional actors and or non-professional actors. And then the music of Bill Lee, his dad provides the soundtrack, which he did for a few other films, but um, his sister, Joie Lee is in it. Um, it just seems like, uh, you know, a work of love and a work of family. So there's a lot of that. And I think there's, I don't know, I mentioned it before, there's just kind of a vibrancy to it where you can tell that people were, like Spike Lee was just having fun playing. Oh, the labor of love (laughs) quality comes off so so strongly. One thing that Spike Lee always mentions in interviews is that the real cinema lover in his family was his mother. His dad, you guys, Bill Lee, who did the soundtrack for this, um, detested film. Is that funny? (laughs) And specifically what he hated about it was... uh, I mean, obviously, it's betrayal of, of black people. You know, he absolutely hated the way that it came off so fake. But his mom, as he said it, uh, his mom always took him out to be his uh, her, her cinema date, <laughs> essentially. So uh, you also have a situation where Spike Lee's grandmother actually foot a lot of the bill for this film. So you're talking about these familial elements. But I think that's something that stands out. And Spike Lee in it is awesome. I think him actually his performance in this great. Well, obviously that character persisted too because it you know he became a an advertisement for sneakers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, it's interesting because because we don't we don't think I, I feel like today we don't really think of Spike Lee the actor so much, 
but I mean, he's, you know, he's the star of do the right thing. You know, he's plays a pretty big role in, uh, in, uh, um, Oh gosh. Uh, uh, lost my train of thought. Uh, anyway, he acted in many of his, you know, many of his early films. It was quite good. Yeah. He, the Mars Blackman character, he of course continued in those Nike Michael Jordan mm-hmm. commercials, but <laughs> I actually, I just rewatched those in the last few weeks. Cause I've uh, been watching, uh, the, the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are all fantastic. I mean, they're just, <laughs> every one of them is so, so good. So let me um, ask you this, Ben or Anahan, I'm curious, does, uh, for when the actor puts himself in the film, him or herself in the film, does it bother you guys or do you like it? I always like it. I mean, like Alfred Hitchcock put himself in the film. Yeah, or, like, <laughs> or you, you talked about Woody Allen, um, or even when when yeah. Martin Scorsese pops into his films. No, I like it. I mean, if you can do as good a job, if you're an actor, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't think of times that I, I dislike yeah. it. Um, it, but yeah, it does. It uh, you know, it does. I mean, Hitchcock kind of does the pop in cameo, <laughs> and 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 Spike Lee, you know, is more like Woody Allen is more of like an actor. You know, he's really in there playing a playing a part and everything. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think I like it. I, I think I mentioned Woody Allen too because for me, uh, Manhattan was a movie that really jumped out to me on this rewatch. Um, both the 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 black and white cinematography, and um, especially at the end, there's some shots kind of down uh, underneath the bridge down there that really harken to Manhattan. But I went back too and I looked at uh, you know the the opening of Manhattan is set to. Uh, Rhapsody in Blue and we get all these kind of shot, these kind of just beauty shots really of like buildings and kind of things in Manhattan here. It, it's a similar, but, but very distinct opening here. And I was really taken away. In fact, even before we get to the credit sequence here, this film starts with a Zora Neale Hurston quote, and then we get 40 acres and a mule, his production company. And then we get a single card with a Spike Lee joint on it. That's a pretty that's a pretty confident like this is who I am from a first time filmmaker and it really sets a template for like hey here's here's what to expect in this film but then it goes into that tight opening title sequence which is all uh, still photographs of uh, African Americans uh, in uh, Brooklyn primarily I'm assuming uh, and most of them are kind of period photographs I most of them look to me to be maybe more like 1940s 1950s um, not not contemporary to this film all set to this real kind of beautiful a little bit more um, melancholy uh, score that his father uh, composed. And so like watching that with Manhattan, it was just interesting to kind of see those two very much both about this place. But, you know, Woody Allen's New York City is, is you know, quite a bit different from Spike Lee's New York City. And that's clear just from those, you know, opening montages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's kind of that love letter to Manhattan. I mean, obviously, it's the title of the movie. It's the character in and of itself. Um, and then you have a love letter to Brooklyn. Which, I mean, this is like Rotten Apple period New York City. It was not considered to be a beautiful or nice place to live. Um, But he shoots it so beautifully and he includes so many nice human details that, I mean, I think it literally, this movie did actually encourage people to move to Brooklyn. Some people even blame Spike Lee for 
gentrification, but that, that's obviously. Well, he himself <laughs> even admits Melbourne. now that version of Brooklyn that exists in the film no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And, and by many years ago, that it doesn't exist now at this point. Yeah. But but also, I think the the score itself, I think the inclusion of all of the the jazz music, and specifically, it's not like a real like peppy, but it, it's not necessarily that. It's like this really introspective. You know, it gives your mind a chance to to feel melancholy. I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and Dustin, uh, you had mentioned uh, in addition to uh, uh, Woody Allen, uh, uh, you had also mentioned Cassavetes, and uh, could you could you talk more about that? Because I thought that was a great comparison as well. Yeah, so we're big. Me and Hannah are big Cassavetes fans. Sounds like you are as well. Well, that, one of the first things I said to Hannah as we were watching it, I'm like, this movie reminds me so much of Cassavetes' debut, which was Shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the look of it, once again, it's a black and white movie. It's it's kind of shot in a way that has this real kind of earthy quality to it, where it feels like, oh, you. You just walk inside of your screen to to be a part of this film um but also that movie is also about social issues um but this one seems a lot more real i would say probably than shadows because doesn't shadows have that main character which yeah essentially in blackface right if that i think she's just a white woman who no the uh the the protagonist the male protagonist i think in that they made they affected him so he looked like he was actually whereas like the rest (laughs) of the the cast are black yeah actors and actresses yeah (laughs) but it it has that similar kind of debut film quality to it Mm -hmm. oh yeah i agree and 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 just a real gritty shot in real locations in new york city kind of yeah absolutely similar soundtrack choices i feel Mm -hmm. Um, but I do love that, like, Spike Lee kind of overexposed, like, almost grainy look, you know, versus, like, a really smooth Manhattan kind of black and white. It's really... Well, yeah, and it also reminds me, you were talking at the beginning how it almost has a, a feeling of a college production. This film almost kind of feels like a play. It seems like one of those films that's kind of done in a chamber piece kind of setting. It's a lot of the main characters looking dead on at the camera and delivering, you know somewhat lengthy monologues mm-hmm. and similar to to another woody allen film I, I kept saying this to hannah it reminded me not too far off from annie hall where it kind of plays with what a structure of a film can do yeah breaking the fourth wall and having the yeah it's obvious from watching it that that spike lee had seen a lot of films by this point yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 no because it does it has that like it, it starts with sort of that like mockumentary format with the like direct to camera. And we even get the characters names on screen. Like it's going to be like a documentary about this, uh, you know, this woman who has these kind of, you know, multiple male lovers at the same time, but it kind of, you know, that, that format kind of comes and goes, it's not really, you know, they doesn't really carry that through all the way. Uh, so one of the questions we got before we had to jump off the other thing, we were just kind of starting to get into it, but I don't think we really got to hear each other's responses on that. Uh, uh, Clinton brought up the question about the, the sequence and color. And there's this, this one sequence in the film, it's mostly a dance sequence that goes into color. Um, and there's even some kind of heels clicking. Clinton wondered if, uh, for him, it, it suggested the Wizard of Oz from the, the heel clicking and obviously the, the jump to color. Um, but uh, I think actually right as we got cut off, Dustin, you were starting to say kind of what that, 
what you thought of that sequence. Yeah, well, certainly the Wizard of Oz, I don't think you could see something, you know, close your eyes and click your heels and not think of Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. And then to have it go to color, it's it's almost like a punch in the face with color all of a sudden. Um, But I was thinking of a larger art movement that exists within opera at one time. in, in, in much older operas, it used to be that in the middle of acts, they would actually separate the acts by having ballet dancers come up and dance to separate various acts. So I, I'm not entirely sure if if uh, if Lee had that inspiration watching it, but the fact that he came from such cultured folks, you know what I mean? Like his his dad being a composer, his mom was an intellectual of some no, he's type, like wasn't she? a ridiculously artistic family. Everybody in his family makes movies or music or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then from further research, I, I did see that one of uh, his biggest influences is 30s musicals. So it also had that quality kind of happening at the same time. Yeah. Man, I loved it, though. I, uh, once that happens in a movie, it's just like, yes, let's get let's see this. <laughs> What, but what happens? It does seem to be a cutting off point in the story, correct? A little bit. Well, and you know, when I watched it too, so it, it initially, you're in color. He's It's it's uh, her uh, birthday. And uh, what's, her, what's her name? I'm trying to remember. Is Nola. It? Nola, yeah. It's Nola's birthday. And Jamie has taken her kind of to this park to celebrate her birthday. And he's kind of decorated this uh, sort of like kind of, there's like a, almost like a statue in like a sort of stage area in front of it. And then these dancers perform. And so we do see Nola and Jamie there and you kind of, you know, it says like, Hey, it's your birthday or whatever. And then they go into it. But one thing that I thought was interesting as I was watching it is it never cuts away from the dancers to their reactions to yes. it. But there was a point during the dancing where I actually started wonder, I was like, wait a minute, are they watching this or is this just like a completely like just representative of their, their feelings in this moment? Uh, and, and then at the end it does go to them and they're applauding and they're talking about it. So it's like, okay, this, this was like an actual real thing that happened there, but to, it very much feels like it's a dance representing their, just representing their relationship. And it just almost felt like it was a total, you know, like we're, we're kind of off the timeline now as we're watching it. Well, and even as you're talking about it, it to me brings up the idea of like Herzog's uh, ecstatic truth kind of, you know, idea where all of a sudden it just goes into the basic truth of the scene is whatever, you know, the feeling is of this. So mm-hmm. I had that mm-hmm. feeling watching it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't know other other areas we haven't touched on that you struck out, stung out uh, stuck out to you guys, and oh. I, I mean, I think you'd mentioned that Nola is kind of the character acting wise that you don't really connect with. Um, although I guess I didn't even realize there was a Netflix series based on this. I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, I totally this. Um, and I guess she makes a cameo in that. But um, I think in terms of just interpreting how her character develops, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's so in your face how they keep trying to show that, you know, just because this woman is promiscuous, they take so many pains to show that she's a healthy, normal person and that it's not because of her dad not loving her like Mars speculates. And they, you know, all these men around her have... Um, these opinions about how she is and kind of that, you know, that irony you have, you see as the audience where they judge her so harshly 
for having sex but then you know obviously there also takes two to tango that kind of idea um so i think seeing this especially because i mean there there's the thing that's tough about watching this movie obviously is there is just a seemingly out of nowhere rape scene that spike lee's actually gone back and apologized for um may i actually read his quote on that yeah yeah because it's it's fascinating what he had to say about it so um spike lee has said that if there's one thing that he could take back this would be this particular rape scene and and i quote if i was able to have any do-overs that would be it it was just totally stupid. I was immature. I made light of rape. And that's the one thing I would take back. I was immature. And I hate that I did not view rape as the vile act that it is. Yeah. So and I I think that his development of her character is not is not too far off from 2014 Spike Lee saying that. And I I think that's something I appreciate because typically, you know, I I don't think, I think rape is a lot of times used to develop female characters just as, you know, in kind of a lazy way. Um, But I think there, his handling and his writing of that character was really interesting where a lot of characters seemed a little shallow. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about (laughs) Nola as a character. Well, and something else too, this, this film also gets thought of a lot in, in regards to the concept of male gaze, like this idea of the female character being told from the perspective of a male. How do you think it holds up in regards to that? Do you think he does a pretty good job of of writing a a female character? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think a lot of times the women in his movies are really well-developed compared to others you might see. Well, and the thing to me that saves it is the very end scene where she's looking at the camera and talking about that. What what is it that she's saying at that point? Does anyone remember that better than me? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the the end of the film, and there, yeah, there's the the rape, which is bad. (laughs) It just doesn't 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 is 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 bad for a lot of reasons and doesn't really seem to fit in story-wise and and anything either but you know so so even just like setting that aside you're you're kind of in the midst of an end of the film where it seems like she's on your classic kind of like code era like you know path to righteousness where you know she's she's gonna um write her you know write her ways and settle down with a man and you're really like tracking in that direction at the end and you're kind of wincing you're kind of like oh, oh are we going you know this is where we're going and uh you're like you oh, know this was 1986 and that wasn't code era but it was still a while ago and this was maybe this is where they had to go but yeah then and, and it kind of gives you a sort of false resolution there because she does there is a point where it's like she she reaches out to Jamie, who's kind of the one of her three lovers, who's really wants to have like a pretty standard kind of monogamous relationship or marriage, you know, with her, and has really been pushing for that. And it seems like she kind of, is, you know, ultimately, is, there's a point where you think she's saying, "Yes, you're right. That's what I want to," you know. Um, and th- but then there's a sharp cut to, and then it's back to that kind of interview scene of her and she's basically like yeah you know that didn't last that's not who i am (laughs) you know and she kind of basically reasserts herself in the same way that she did at the beginning of the film which yeah it's that really i think saves the ending in a lot of ways from you know really just kind of going off the rails it feels that feels a lot better although i have to say i also wondered like was i wonder if this was like a reshoot (laughs) because it's pretty it's you know i just wonder if you know they tested it yeah, or, you know, you know, not that they test, not like you know, this was in a, you know, they didn't take this down to, uh, 
you know, multiplex in Orange County and, you know, bring in a hundred strangers to watch it. But, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite feel like it fits, but yet it does feel like it's the right place that it, it ends up. Well, so. I think it's significant also that this was a film that was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress, which he has several of his films that's that's in that. So I, I'd be curious to, to know if this is one of the few debut films. or. If I mean, a, to be fair, aren't like all tweets saved by the library of well Congress. i suppose that's true yeah maybe it's not <laughs> <laughs> way to but, way to bring it down yeah. sorry <laughs> sorry no but i will for a movie from 1986 i was really impressed with how they handled a lot of the subject matter and just kind of it was like you'd mentioned right at the top it's so different from those really polished commercial 80s movies that i think a lot of us are used to and were you guys familiar with that this film had a, a huge problem in getting rated because they just wanted to give it an x rating because of all of the the sex scenes that exist within the film um spike lee feels that primarily what that actually meant was uh people weren't used to seeing black people having sex on screen mm-hmm. And I, I actually think the sex scenes are fairly interesting in this movie. It doesn't seem like it's really, I don't know, overblown or something like that. I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, super normal, just nice yeah. and black and white. But yeah, I, I do think that the race of the characters, the fact that, you know, the cast is black, I think that's really significant too. I, in, in terms of 80s significance, I think it introduced a more nuanced look at what a black character could be in film in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah. Well, there and there is one in here too uh, that's very you get a lot of uh, uh, belly button and nipple very close, and it reminded me a lot of the the ice cube scene in uh, "Do the Right Thing." Like yeah. it was very very similar both stylistically and uh, um, and it suggests to me that Spike Lee's into belly buttons, but you know that's <laughs> cool. so, just gonna throw that there. out there. And, yeah. Uh... yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it's one of the most impressive debuts ever, though, don't you think? I mean, it's obviously yeah. a signpost of all the things that are to come in Spike Lee's yeah. career. Well, the fact that so much, yeah, you, know, you mentioned the kind of those kind of student films where you start to see those little qualities that come up and become really significant later in their work. He's held to almost everything. I mean, the <laughs> it's down to the uh, title of his production company and his um, focus on race is focused on film history references to wizard of oz all those things come up so much and, and the fun credits at the end what what great closing credits yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> no i agree and and that's something too i always think about with spike lee is and and i i mean i think he's you know made a number of absolute masterpiece films you know but the thing about spike lee to me is he's always interesting even if the film doesn't maybe 100 percent work so i think about a later work like like bamboozled and i think like bamboozled is you know that movie doesn't that doesn't all fit together and there's some real kind of like rough edges there but like man he went there like he yeah. you know he, he was going for something and like i would way rather watch a film that's got that kind of voice and like went for something like that and like you know what at the end of the day maybe all the pieces didn't line up uh that's that's interesting to me and so that's one reason that i mean i I, don't, I can't think of any Spike Lee film that I've ever not had some level of enjoyment from because even some of those that it doesn't all come together, like 
you know, there's always still something there. And, and, you know, when he really, it really kind of fouls on all cylinders, like, you know, black Klansman or 25th hour, or, you know, of course do the right thing, etc. Like it's, you're just like, Whoa, you know, mm-hmm. this is. Well, and he really but, seems like a, a director that's just been robbed at the Oscars year after year. Isn't it crazy that he's one of those directors that still hasn't a hundred percent been given his full due? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, it does, but I just put so little stock in. Well, that's understandable. <laughs> in, in the Oscars, you know, I don't know. I mean, Martin Scorsese didn't win until he won for uh, uh, what was the film he won? Hugo. Irish Gangster. Film. Oh no. Oh, was didn't he do really well with Hugo though? I feel like he that won was a ton what... of stuff for, for Hugo, but I don't think he. Are you talking about Gangs of New York? Oh no, you're talking no, about The no. Departed. The Departed. No, The Departed. The Departed was the one he finally won for, which to me is like. I, I didn't think was particularly good, you know. But. It's okay. I mean, you know, but there's a lot of. I mean, that's probably the best movie in the history of any film to uh, to have so many Boston accents happening at one so time. So many co-ops. So many co-ops. Co-oppers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my god. Well, he he really uh, raked up the Oscars for Hugo. I'm just gonna say. That. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, back but, to Spike Lee yeah, for so a second. Yeah, so there are people, I, I, I agree, it's kind of just a, if you look back at the history of the best films, a lot of times it's like, where, how did that happen? Where did that come from? I'll and tell just, you what, that year that Black Klansman was up and he didn't win, he won the award for the most awesome director ever at one of those ceremonies. Did you watch him at all? Like, throughout the entire thing, he had like his whole Prince outfit on, his whole purple suit, and every interview that he was getting, he was just like on fire, being so funny. I love his personality. <laughs> Rumor is that you turned your back and then when you were asked what you thought about Greenbelt winning, you apparently said, next question. No, I said, let me take another sip of champagne. That's what I said. Look. The county voters didn't seem fit that, you know, we were worthy of the of best picture. And the same, and you know, look, it's a, I guess it's progress, you know, do the right thing to even get nominated. So uh, I guess it might have to take another 20 years to uh, come back. So we'll see. Well, what do you make of Green Book as a film? It's, I mean, it seems very similar to Driver's Daisy. Thank you so much. They just changed the driving positions. That was the same year as Do the Right Thing, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Do the Right Thing not get nominated for Best Picture. Just, I got, Daniello got nominated for Best Supporting Actor, lost out to Denzel for Glory, and had Best Screenplay nomination, lost out to Dead Post Society. Is there something about Green Book that offends you? This is what I'm trying to get to. Offend? Are you British? Yeah. Are you British? I am. Let me give you a British answer. It was my cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) Not my cup of tea. Yeah. Well, and then of course he he lost because and then didn't uh, Green Book won Best Picture that year, right? Just like uh, uh, Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture instead of uh, Do the Right Thing. Well, in the interview that I'm thinking of specifically, which I'll probably add on this show, is at the very he's getting interviewed by some press person, and the guy's like, well, what did you think? Did you feel like you you should have won? And he's just like, as stone-faced as can be, he's like, listen, I think it's like, I know he made some sports analogy, and he's like, the ref made a bad call. (laughs) And then he just starts like jumping around and laughing. He's just got such a great energy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, uh, 
we uh, we also uh, we were going to talk about Deer Skin. Oh boy! Oh uh, yeah, Deer Skin. <laughs> we transition. Did you guys? Did you guys watch Deer Skin? We watched Deer Skin. So so for anybody who who isn't aware, uh, we uh, are hosting a, a virtual cinema, uh, which is a way for us to help uh, premiere new films. Uh, here while all the all the theaters are closed. So there are particularly independent films that are still releasing in this sort of virtual cinema format. So you can come to our website, DesMoinesFilm.org. We've got a virtual cinema link there. Um, we've got films that typically they're playing for about two weeks. We're, we're kind of, we're showing about two films at a time. Um, and uh, so uh, right now, just this last Friday, we premiered this film, uh, this French film, Deerskin. Uh, and so you can still check it out there, um, for, uh, the next, uh, almost two weeks still. Uh, anyway, what did you guys think about Deerskin? <laughs> it's a bananas it was, movie. Yeah, It was, it was bananas. It was really interesting. Um, I would highly encourage, I mean, it's definitely, it's worth watching. It's worth renting, especially because, I mean, we've, rented trolls to a couple times for our kids and you know like the twenty dollars you spend to watch that isn't necessarily going to small uh movie theaters and this you know obviously that's part of this uh distribution but anyway um in terms of the movie itself i definitely recommend watching it it's not terribly long but it's really interesting it's packed full of weird <laughs> um the logic of the movie i think is just sometimes movies are really good at creating this uh world in and of itself for the logic as its own and you're just kind of swept into that right away this is definitely one of those films i kept saying to hannah as we were watching it i kept saying to her uh this really feels like a film that we would have went to the varsity theater had no idea what it was and then just walked away like wow what was that all about so uh ben we do have to say we thought of the varsity theater a lot as we watched it so just mm -hmm. saying that real quick um oh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, if if we had if we had the varsity open and running at this point, I think this is definitely a film that would have been mm -hmm. fun to program. This this would be an amazing midnight movie. Uh, oh yeah. It, to me, one thing that I kept thinking of, I, we we actually last night just watched another film. Have you ever seen the film One Cut of the Dead? No, I haven't. Uh, I, we don't necessarily need to get into the whole thing. It's it's awesome, but it's a film that's kind of about filmmaking, uh, kind of reminiscent of the documentary American Movie, which is also a film about the act of putting a film together. I kept thinking this is like a surreal version of that. Tie, you yeah, know. so you have this guy who is obsessed with his new jacket. <laughs> yes. And uh, to the point he communicates with said jacket, and he simultaneously is behaving like a filmmaker, but he knows nothing about making movies <laughs> yeah so it's kind of it's interesting to see him try to educate himself and where you know he's trying to create but well we kept saying we're like what exact what what genre of film is this i think we were having a hard time even yeah it's, putting a pin it's on not it. that funny it's not that dark well it's pretty dark <laughs> it's pretty dark it gets there <laughs> but it could be it could be a little more you know heavy hitting with all that um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely I saw people make a I, I think I would almost go absurdist you know if yeah. I had to a genre and I, I certainly saw people make you know boon well ref you know comparisons um but i you know i think it's mostly been described as you know dark comedy or horror and it's like yeah it's it's maybe somewhere kind of in in between those it's more i'd say just you know you know dark weird vibe kind of picture so <laughs> yeah it was cool to see jean dujardin do a role like that <laughs> 
Who yeah. I think, I mean, I think of him in the artist. <laughs> exclusively. <right>? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> almost exclusively. Um, so, yeah, it's it's weird in a way that I really enjoyed. I would agree with that. It felt a little slower than it's 80 minutes or whatever it was, but um, I think it's definitely worth watching. This, this statement. I don't want to give anything away, so I'm trying to be careful here. This statement's not going to mean much, but maybe it'll mean something to somebody. It was one of those films, as you're watching it, you were like thinking like, oh, I bet this was made on a, on a very you know shoestring budget. But then we kept joking like, oh, it probably still costs like 15, you know, $25 million to make or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What were your thoughts, Ben? I mean, you liked yeah. it? Oh, no, real similar to you guys. I mean, uh, it's it's so it, it's so deeply weird, you know? I mean, it, it just, it lays out a weird vibe right away, you know? It's like, this guy is obsessed with this jacket, and he, you know, buys this, buys this kind of just weird, like, old deerskin jacket that incidentally does not really fit him particularly well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay i'm glad i'm not the only person that was a little short on him <laughs> no it was but i feel like that was like part of it was it was just this whole kind of you know uh he his his vision of what this meant to him was you know completely divorced from you know the reality mm-hmm. of what this this looked like and killer and then style it, yeah killer style <laughs> uh and as you guys mentioned, then, you know, he's, he gets this uh, video cam- he, he purchases this jacket from somebody and I'm giving kind of some plot synopsis here, I guess, to the extent that there's plot in this film. And uh, he, uh, the, the person he buys the jacket from also gives him this old kind of like DV tape camcorder, you know, like right. a 98 era, like, you know, camcorder kind of thing. And he, we do get a smidge of backstory. It seems like his, his, uh, uh, marriage has just ended basically. And he's kind of left wherever he lived with, lived with his wife and whatever his life was before that. And he, uh, rents a, a, a room in this, uh, uh, hotel in kind of a small rural community in France. And, um, yeah, then just sort of with the, he, he's almost kind of trying to carve out a new identity for himself here um, quite literally as you know I'm the deerskin jacket guy and then he's got this camera and he sort of has a conversation in a bar where he just sort of almost seems like off the cuff just says I'm a filmmaker but then kind of runs with that and decides yes I am a filmmaker and of course from there the jacket starts talking to him essentially and he's having conversations with the jacket and it you know it goes from there no I I mean it I I, I love weird and this movie definitely this definitely goes goes weird. You know, my the the one kind of thing I would say is it, it I mean it's 77 minutes long and there's not a lot of story beats that come kind of after the setup. Um and so it just it didn't quite uh it's it, it goes to it creates a very weird vibe and gives us this really kind of unusual character and so it's very interesting to watch him there but it doesn't ultimately kind of, you know, I think the best version of this film would have then had maybe a couple of more kind of reveals or reversals or changes of direction that we didn't see coming. And this more just kind of continues in that same kind of, you know, vibe, but it's a, it's a deeply weird vibe and pretty unique and interesting to hang out with for 77 minutes. Well, I think for me and Hannah, we both like weird as well. That's something we like, but sometimes uh, weird for the sake of telling an interesting story. It's not that the, the story is not interesting, but I don't think the filmmaker necessarily had 
anything necessarily they were trying to say with it. A film that comes to mind with me is something like uh, Punch Drunk Love, which kind of has like a weird kind of aesthetic to it. Like as you're watching it, you're like, oh, this is making me feel uncomfortable and strange at points. Um, but I feel like some of the symbolism in Punch Drunk Love kind of works a little bit better or something like that. Yeah, this it, one you basically have the one symbol of jackets. And that's, <laughs> that's about a- it. That's a really interesting comparison, actually, though, because I, I would I mean, I would say I, I think there are some ideas at play here. And to me, there were just some things about maybe toxic masculinity or kind of like midlife crisis sort of, you know, man trying to redefine himself. And this is sort of a kind of preposterous permutation of that. But but much like Punch Truck Love really kind of has some of that same those same elements floating there. So that, that's a really interesting comparison to me. Um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, whereas Punch Truck Love, there's more of an, you know, there's more of an arc there and you kind of see that character maybe develop or change, you know. Well, I um, think sometimes a, a truly great film or any, you know, a great song or anything like that, you can almost say in a sentence what the film is, is about. And to me, Punch Drunk Love is about trying to find some kind of love or acceptance in the world. It's like any other, you know, that story has been told a million ways. um, But Punch Drunk Love is the only version of it that I can think of that was told like that. I think this one is a little bit harder to give that one sentence appraisal of what this film is. The bartender made that point about she thought his film was about... What was it? Your layers of protection, which I like. Yeah. yeah, so the things you show the outside world and everything. But well, and I think it also w- just can I can I interrupt really quickly yeah. and bring it back to a very um, not intelligent question? But are we to believe that he spent seven thousand euros on that jacket? Oh, I didn't pay attention. Is I that what it was? That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, just checking. Just checking. <laughs> I'm so glad anyway, you brought that back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, and I'm not totally familiar with the current exchange rate, but that did sound like a lot for that. <laughs> But he got a camcorder, so. He did get a camcorder. Did it come with the cassettes? That's the thing. I don't know if you could get those cassettes now, right? Those are gone. (laughs) Details. She seemed to be able to think she could get them. That that town, it had to have whatever the French equivalent of, like, a Ben Franklin is. Like, it had, there was one of those in that town that still had, like, you know, DV tapes that to uh, facilitate the film so it was perfect uh, for an afternoon though you know it beat the pants off of trolls 2 we've seen that about a thousand times at this point so just to see something that engaged the the adult mind was much appreciated yeah i uh i've watched trolls 2 as well with my children uh we have not watched the scooby-doo movie yet but that's I feel tomorrow like, for us yeah is it yeah <laughs> i feel like that that could be a thing that happens here so can i ask uh, a, a kind of off-topic question yeah. What movies do you show your kids um, that you enjoy too, or to ensure that they have um, a broader taste in film? Little cinephiles. Does what's that make your, sense? Yeah. What's your cinephile of seeds? See, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, or do you I, do that at all? <laughs> I do. I do, but I feel like it maybe starts a smidge older than kind of where where your kids are and where my youngest is right now. So. My my twelve year old, um, as you know, as he got to maybe like first second grade, kind of like that. I feel like we, kind that was maybe where he first got into you know some of those films. Um, I know I took him, I took he and a friend to a Miyazaki film uh, that was at Flicks. Oh, but they like uh, that. They were in maybe like third grade, you know. So that was you know pretty cool. And now, I mean, and it's 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 ramped up over time, and and actually it's kind of exciting now. And and while we're in like quarantine too, he's really 
developed an interest in like broadening his kind of film knowledge. So even actually, even before quarantine started, maybe back in January or February, he kind of came up to us and was like, like, what are like Hitchcock movies? Like, I kind of want to see some Hitchcock movies. So, you know, we watched watched a bunch of Hitchcock movies and uh, we just, we watched uh, the Godfather last week. And so he's got a, a list of a kind of a like hundred greatest movies list that he's sort of like working off of and trying to make his way through. So, um, but it's interesting, even that, you know, we're trying, and so he's going into eighth grade, so he's much older and he's able to, you know, kind of uh, handle some of this stuff. But even then, like I, he, he wants to see Citizen Kane and I'm kind of like, like, I mean, a gr- absolutely great movie, but I'm like, eh, that movie's kind of slow and like, kind of <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, it's, it, you're kind of like, or I know he wants to see 2001 and I want to show him 2001, <laughs> but I'm like, I don't know, man, do you, are, yeah. you, are you like, just like relax your mind and let that experience happen? And so, <laughs> um, so I don't know, it's a good question. Have you tried any, have you, have you tried any with yours that have maybe then not- Well, we have our kids, I mean, you referenced, we told you earlier, they're five and two. So it's it's a little more limited, but um, who was it that talked about um, Wizard of Oz? They said that the the way to um, well, Patrick was just talking about Wizard of no, Oz, but it wasn't not him. Him. There was some filmmaker you told me about once who I wanted to make sure his daughter was into good movies, and so he showed her Wizard of Oz. So, but you know, our, our kids actually do like stuff like that. We try to find just at this point, it's all about any media that has longer than you know eight minute episodes well i think for our daughter too like our daughter is someone who's really interested in halloween she's always had like a huge interest in all that stuff Mm -hmm. so i think one of the first films that made a lasting impact on her you said wizard of oz for sure Mm -hmm. but it has that spooky element to it right so there's the wicked witch of the west our daughter really loved nightmare before christmas Mm -hmm. and from there, I kind of thought, well, she's kind of into this spooky thing. So, Mad Monster Party. Yeah, Mad <laughs> Monster Party, the Rankin and Bass uh, Halloween special. Um, but then from there, she kind of like, she'll sit, she'll watch Frankenstein from the 30s. And she likes some of that kind of stuff. Um, she loves Fantastic Mr. Fox. The Black Cat. The Black Cat, Boris Karloff. Yeah, yeah she, I have no idea why she likes that, but she does. That's great. Nice. <laughs> so we feel lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, you guys. No, you guys are doing an amazing job. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a great one. That was oh, definitely yeah. one that I showed my kids pretty early on. I know all the the Muppet movies, which are, are nice transitional ones, I think too, because they're kind of like they're characters that they kind of know and like. But those movies are a little bit more sophisticated than some of the, you know, kind of those kind of movies they see. Um, both my kids, uh, Princess Bride is one of the earliest films that we shown them. That is, you know. Uh, they they can still get into it because it's got those kind of you know kind of fairy tale elements to it but it's got a lot of a lot of humor and depth you know stuff that that we all kind of can can enjoy as well so yeah even um, i watched that movie obsessively when i was a kid and i watched it without catching any of the irony you know i didn't know it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek like parody of a genre so it's fun to grow with movies like same that with too. young frankenstein for you right isn't that another one where it's well, kind of similar that was... oh you knew that was well of course yeah but another <laughs> one that you like the kind of yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. you know another going we uh we watched splash a few weeks ago oh. and i mean that movie is so funny and I, it's funny because i have a memory from college because I, I remember seeing that movie when i was a little kid and i thought it was great and then I, I remember watching it like in my dorm room in college and I was like, oh my God, there are so many like dirty jokes in this movie <laughs> that like 
just had completely, you know, I when I'd seen it when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you, know, <laughs> you know. Oh, like, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There you go, yeah. Yep. Have, yep. have you guys have had the experience of watching that as a child versus an adult? <laughs> Very oh, different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I think those are all, I think, yeah, those are all good kind of examples but i'm curious um, yeah we're all locked up in our houses here for a while so <laughs> actually before we end this segment i did want to say this our daughter who was one phoebe moon uh i showed her magical mystery tour the beatles film and man we went through almost i mean what like four months of her requesting to yeah, see that <laughs> there was something about just the raw music and the crazy like motions of the camera that she was just so attracted to so yeah I, I, it's funny you say that. I, I, I've been meaning to show uh, particularly hard. Actually, I think Henry, Henry watched Hard Day's Night with us, but but Hard Day's Night and Help. And yeah, Magical Mystery Tour is so kind of disjunct. I hadn't really, I hadn't shown that one to him. Not not like because he can't watch it or anything, but we hadn't watched that. But those it's, Beatles are, are fun, too, especially when your kids, once your kids get into the Beatles music and yours probably already are too. But I think once they know some of the songs and they kind of know you know, they, I mean, it's it's like the other things, like they know the characters a little bit, right? Yeah. So, well, we'd be uh, remiss not to say Yellow Submarine, obviously. That's another one yeah. if you want it, yeah. So. Yeah, 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 so awesome. We should do a second one of these. There's just all like movies to watch with your kids. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, totally. Parent movie podcast. Yeah, yeah, these are good. These are good suggestions. So, all righty. Well, um, I don't know. Anything else you guys have seen lately or anything else you guys wanted to mention or if if it's okay i'd like to say this for our next so this will go up tomorrow hopefully i'll be able to get this all edited together and we'll have a nice little crossover between des moines film society and lantern cinema Um, which we always appreciate yes our next uh film that we're actually going to be breaking down is satyajit ray's uh pather panchali so that'll be we've been doing all the research for that and and another amazing debut film that we're excited to break down so that'll go live next week as well yeah Oh, that'll be exciting. I, that's a film I have not seen, so I would uh, I would love to check that out. And, you should uh, watch it with your son. Yeah. Oh, is it a good one to, good uh, one to it's, watch? No, it's, no. it's <laughs> cripplingly sad. But if he wants to see like one of the world's great films that's just like, wow, that's I've never seen anything like that. That's a good one. Yeah, well, that'll be my sell. It'll be, well, you could play more Animal Crossing, or we could watch this film. <laughs> it's cripplingly or you can sad. Watch this- very depressing black and white film from India in the 1950s. Yes, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right, all right, awesome. Hey, thank you guys so much, especially with the technical challenges oh, tonight. Oh, yeah, thanks for being so patient, and, and oh. mostly thanks for inviting us. It was really fun. And thanks for all you no. do for the film scene in yes. Des Moines. We really appreciate oh, that awesome. all these years. Well, right, right back at you guys. So uh, anyway, thank you, and thank you for everybody who ends up watching this. And we do get this uploaded facebook and please follow lantern cinema and obviously follow des moines film society as well and we'll uh, we'll see everybody later all right so long everyone we fight out we fight out hi i'm spike lee but i'm not directing i do this it pays the rent puts food on the table butter on my whole wheat bread anyway i had this new comedy coming out it's a very funny film she's gotta have it check this out Nola was something special. She had this amazing effect on men. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Good night. Good night? Wait, wait, wait a minute. Is Jamie there? I was the best thing that ever happened to Nola, darling. Ask her, she'll tell you that herself. Why, she worshipped me. I've never seen anybody who liked to look at themselves more than you do. Don't you ever get tired? Never happened, baby. Stop, stop, Nola, stop, stop. Nola knew what she wanted. 
And she's gotta have it. No darling would never marry a non-modeling, non-weightlifting, pseudo-black man like yourself. You know, Nolan, you've done me wrong. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. You know, Jamie, you're okay. You know, I've been thinking. I'm gonna hook you up. With Nola, you get four days, I'll get three. It's mighty black of you. But I get the weekends, though. So you're bugging out, right? You're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go. If you don't, I'll still be here on this corner. Tube socks, tube socks, three fight hours, three fight hours. Two socks, three fight hours. Fight out, fight out, fight out. Je vous ai appelé hier pour la petite annonce. Voilà la bête, 100% d'un tuerie. C'est moi. Pourquoi tu m'appelles bah Pour dire que je suis loin, quoi. T'es nulle part, Georges. T'existes plus. Vous parlez de mon blouson hum, Non, non, non. T'es pas du coin, toi. Hein mais votre tournage là, c'est quoi Euh. Salut toi. Tu passes hyper bien la caméra. Hein. T'as regardé ce que j'ai filmé Ah ouais J'adore. En revanche, il me faut plus d'images. Il faut plus d'action là. Il me faut plus de sang. Excusez-moi, monsieur, mais c'est pas un peu bizarre votre film C'est pas du tout bizarre, c'est génial. 